Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. All right, as we begin this morning, I have a question for all of you. How many have you have ever worked on a farm? Okay, so a few of you, have any of you kids ever taken care of farm animals? That's pretty cool. Okay, well, uh, how many of you have ever worked on a farm in ancient Israel 3,200 years ago? <laughs> oh, okay, we got one. All right. <laughs> Good, I thought we'd have no one on that one. Okay, that's helpful. I'll consult with Joshua then. So we've been going through our summer sermon series on the book of Ruth, and we come today to Ruth chapter 3, which is, um, on one hand, probably the most exciting part in the whole story, but on the other hand, is full of a lot of funny and confusing details about ancient Near East farming and betrothal customs, about threshing floors and kinsmen redeemers, which describe the way that things were done literally thousands of years ago in the time of the judges. So it's important that we not just pass judgment or jump to conclusions too quickly. We need to back up and make sure that we understand a bit of the historical context. So please turn there with me to Ruth 3. It's on page 223 in your pew Bible. And according to chapter 2, verse 23, all the things in this passage take place at the end of the barley and wheat harvest. So there's no more sowing, no more harvesting, no more gleaning. We come to the end of that. Now, um, most of us were not raised around farming, much less farming from 3,200 years ago. So I want to give us a few pictures and definitions to catch us up to speed. So the first word for us to define is threshing floor. And I have a picture of a threshing floor here for you. So at the end of the harvest, the farmers would pile all the grain mixed with the chaff on the threshing floor, which was outside, oftentimes just outside of town, maybe even on a hill. And the threshing floor was made of stone or sometimes just compact earth. And what would happen is they would wait for the breeze to blow at dusk. And when the breeze would blow, the farmers would use a wooden pitchfork and sort of toss it all up in the air. So let's look at picture number two. And as a result, the chaff, which was lighter, would blow away in the wind, and the grain, which was heavier, would fall back to the floor. And this process of separating the wheat from chaff was known as threshing. So um, one interesting thing to note, in, um, and we see this in this passage in um, verse 7, chapter 3, verse 7, is that at the time of threshing, it was such an important time of year that even a wealthy man would sleep outside on the ground on the threshing floor. It says he slept at the end of the heap of grain. And they did this as a way of guarding it. I mean, this pile of grain was so valuable, and they wanted to make sure nobody made off with it. And so you can see Boaz doing that here in this picture. All right, there's Boaz laying on the threshing floor. And we see Ruth over there. And also it's worth noting that Ruth uses this language of servant twice in verse 9. Um, and in that culture, houses and sometimes tents were much smaller than we're used to today. They didn't oftentimes even have room. So it was actually common for servants to sleep at the feet of their masters in sort of a perpendicular position. 
All right, so that's what we see Ruth doing here, although, of course, she also uncovers his feet, you know, try to let, let him get cold so that he can wake up and stuff like that. So, so we can see, um, let, let's look at the next picture. You see, you see Ruth is sort of perpendicular to Boaz there. Now, um, I want to ask the kids a question. I hope they've been paying attention during the reading and during this explanation because you've seen these two pictures of Ruth and Boaz. I, I, I look both these up. I really like both these pictures. So go back to the other one. And then back to the other one. And I want to ask the children, which one do you think is more historically and biblically accurate? So no adults shout out here. I want to know from the kids, which do you think is more historically and biblically accurate? Let's look at both of them again. That one? Take a good look. Oh, no. Previous one. Previous one. There we go. All right. Or this one. All right. Yeah, Miriam. Well, the purple cloth was very, like, um, expensive back then. Yeah, okay, this is a deep answer. She said, this doesn't seem very likely. Purple cloth was very expensive. I don't know, but maybe Boaz, he was a really wealthy man. Maybe he had it, but that's pretty good, yeah. Um, also, didn't it say, well, um, with what Miriam was saying, didn't it also say that Boaz was like, well, you don't care, like, who I, it's like, who I am, like, I'm glad that you weren't looking for a rich, wealthy man? Yeah, young man, whether they're poor or rich. Yeah, yeah, that's right. true. So that's, well, yeah, but that's, that, that's not exactly what I'm getting at. There's two things here. Notice in this picture, you see, you see this is the threshing floor in this artist's description. Now, now, look at the next one. There's two things to notice. What's different? Yeah, Dante. The second one is indoors. The second one is indoors. Yeah, so this is more accurate. Why? Because the threshing floor would have been outside, right? Now, there's one more detail in this picture that I think is more accurate than the other one. Nora? The wheat is tied up. No, I wasn't. I wasn't thinking so much that because we don't. We don't totally know about that. But let me just show you one more time. The other picture. Oh, yeah. Somebody just got it. All right. All right. Back to the previous one. All right. This is also more accurate because it says that Ruth uncovered his feet. And look at in the other picture, his feet are covered up. All right. All right. So that gives us a bit of a framework for the farming background of the story. But now I want to get into the weeds of this very bold marriage proposal. At least we hope that's what it is, which forms the central action of Ruth chapter 3. Ruth was this young, impoverished Moabite widow, and she sneaks out under the cover of darkness to lay at the feet of the sleeping Boaz, the righteous and well-established Israelite. And uh, he was a distant relative of Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi. Now, all of this, this whole plan was in accordance to, uh, was, was cooked up by Naomi. And as we read the story, the whole thing feels a bit forward, doesn't it? A bit tricksy and possibly even scandalous. In fact, there's a reason why we're not acting out this passage like we did in chapter 1 and chapter 2. That could be a little awkward. But I remember the night that I asked Carissa to marry me. And uh, it was also the first time that I ever preached. And the whole thing was also a bit tricksy and bold. And I want to share a little bit about that with you. It was February 2004, and I was a senior at the University of North Florida, and I was scheduled to speak on campus at the large group meeting for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And the plan was to sort of share my testimony and then talk about what the scriptures had been teaching me on the, about the meaning of love. And what I didn't tell anyone is that I planned to propose to Carissa <laughs> at the end of my sermon. 
Now, I had spoken with our parents, of course, and I bought her a ring with the help of my big sister, but no one else, not even our InterVarsity staff worker, knew that I was going to do this. So when the night came, I preached the word, I shared a bit about our story, I played a song that I had written about all that the Lord had been teaching me about the true meaning of love. And after I finished the song, I walked over to Carissa, and I knelt down, and right there in front of the crowd, I asked her to marry me. And she started crying, and she said, oh my goodness, are you doing this right now? <laughs> and I was like, yes. <laughs> and thankfully, praise the Lord, she said yes. <laughs> All right, yeah. I don't need the encouragement. <laughs> and uh, afterwards, our whole Christian community, they just gathered around us, they laid hands on us, they prayed for us. And I gotta admit, in, in hindsight, it was pretty bold and forward of me to propose to Carissa in that way, in front of all those people in that public space. But I would argue that the risk was lessened when you consider the context. So Carissa and I had been dating for four years. We knew we loved each other, and I was reasonably confident that she would say yes. And I think this was the case for Ruth and Boaz. The whole interaction seems far less forward, certainly less scandalous, when you consider three things, all right? First, Naomi had been keeping close tabs on all of Ruth and Boaz's interactions throughout the harvest, and she had a reasonable confidence that Boaz was interested in marrying Ruth. Second, it's helpful to remember that Naomi and Ruth, being poor widows with no heirs, were already in a state of poverty, and they had very little to lose. In fact, one commentator put it this way. He said, if Naomi's plan seemed a bit forward, it was a forwardness born out of desperation. And thirdly, Naomi's plan was actually fueled by the Mosaic Law, which encouraged widows to act with particular boldness when it came to defending their economic cause. So let me unpack that a bit for you. Deuteronomy 25 teaches that if your brother dies and leaves his wife childless, so there's a childless widow, it's the responsibility of the living brother to marry her and bear children together. Now clearly this law was more about land rights and economics than it was about romantic love. Because if the vulnerable widow was forced to marry outside of the family, then that family's share of the promised land, which had been given by the Lord himself, would be absorbed by another family. So on the other hand, if the living brother, sometimes called the kinsman redeemer, honored the deceased by fulfilling this role, not only would the widow be protected, but the land would remain in the family. So this law didn't, it didn't legally force a man to go through with it, but it did apply a healthy dose, dose of social pressure. So flip back there with me, if you would, to Deuteronomy 25. It's on page 166. And listen to what happens if the brother refuses. This passage is hilarious. And notice the boldness of the widow. It says in verses 7 through 10, And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife... Then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate. The gate was sort of like the ancient courthouse back in the day. To the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. You see the social pressure? It's getting turned up a notch. And if he persists saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, 
and pull off his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. <laughs> now, I'm not kidding. That's what the scriptures say the widow should do to this unwilling redeemer. And she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. <laughs> That's not a good name for your household. Shame, shame, know your name. All right, so first of all, let it never be said again that women didn't have rights in the Bible. Because the God of all justice had their backs, amen? amen? But flipping back to Ruth, but flipping back forward to Ruth, let's look more closely at the relevance of this law to the story at hand, because Ruth's situation was a bit more complex. Not only was Ruth a foreigner, but Boaz was, the bro was not the brother of her late husband. He was a more distant relative, so his potential status as a kinsman redeemer was a bit more up for debate. However, what this law helps us to see is that widows like Naomi and Ruth had scriptural precedent to act boldly in seeking their economic justice, and even to play the role of initiator when it came to marital arrangements. Now, to be fair, I think we can say that Naomi's plan is far more humble than this. It's not in public. There's no taking off of sandals. There's no spitting. And Boaz is not the kind of guy who needs that sort of social pressure to do the right thing anyway. But we can see how a proper understanding of the biblical and economic context really casts this story in a whole different light, doesn't it? It makes it clear, for example, that Naomi's plan for Ruth was to suggest a marriage proposition to Boaz and to secure their economic future, not to facilitate some kind of illicit encounter. This is made clear at several points in the text. Look down with me there. In verses 1 and 2, Naomi talks about seeking rest for Ruth and mentions Boaz as a relative, in other words, as a potential redeemer. In verse 3, she instructs Ruth to wash, anoint herself, put on her cloak, which are customary ways of preparing for marriage in that culture. And when Ruth finally speaks in verse 9, she says to Boaz, spread your wings. In other words, spread the edge of your cloak over me, over your servant, for you are a redeemer. This again is marriage imagery. For example, in Ezekiel 16, 8, the Lord is portrayed as the bridegroom of his people in Jerusalem. And God says to them tenderly, when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you. And the text goes on to say, I made my vow to you and entered a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. So this spread your wings over me. This was marriage chamber imagery. So while Ruth's actions were undeniably bold and certainly a bit shrewd, going out under the cover of night, waiting for the end of the party, laying at Boaz's feet and covering them so that he'd wake up, evoking the Redeemer laws to this established, respected Israelite man, all these things are actually tempered by the Mosaic law, by the cultural and economic context, and her obedience to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Now, Ruth is being clear that what's on the table is marriage, not some kind of hookup. And you can tell by Boaz's response that he clearly interprets her actions and words in that way. Because first, he blesses her in the name of the Lord and praises her that she has not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. So in Boaz's mind, this is kind of cool, he believes Ruth is actually the catch. right? Rather than thinking that he is God's gift to this poor, vulnerable widow, he's amazed that she has eyes for him. 
And that's always the way, friends, that a, that's, that's, that's always the perspective of a righteous man entering marriage. That we are getting the better end of the deal, right? Because it's true. We should be thinking, what is this beautiful woman doing with a clown like me? <laughs> How could I be so lucky that she would yoke herself to me to the end of her days? Amen, brothers? <laughs> And when Boaz goes on in verse 11, he calls her a worthy woman. In Hebrew, eshet halil, which is the same phrase used to describe the wife of noble character, the domestic warrior of Proverbs 31. In fact, Ruth is the only woman in all of Scripture who's directly called by that title. Isn't that interesting? And finally, to cap it all off, we know that Boaz took Ruth's actions as a marriage proposal because of how he responds in verses 12 and 13, where he makes a plan to officially discuss the matter with a redeemer, with a relative who's actually closer. He's like, oh, well, if that was going to be appropriate, it'd actually be more appropriate for him, but I kind of want this to happen, so let me go discuss it with him, right? And in this action, we truly see the nobility of Boaz shine through because clearly he wanted to marry Ruth. He clearly had eyes for her and was shocked she had eyes for him. And that night, laying right in front of him was an opportunity to consummate all his deepest longings. But Boaz was committed not to do wrong by anyone else in the pursuit of his own desires. And this proves that it was the Lord and not his flesh that was calling the shots. And according to verse 14, even in that highly tempting situation, we see Jesus' great, 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 great grandparents behave themselves. <laughs> and there's a message in this, I think, for the young men of this congregation. Whether you're engaged or in a relationship or you just have a deep longing to be married. So however it happens, if indeed it does happen, make sure it happens on God's terms. And that might involve having the proper conversations with her parents or her pastors, taking care not to isolate her from her Christian community, which sometimes can take some intentionality. It might involve working hard to chart out a future career for yourself that you can properly provide for a family. It might involve getting free from addictive behaviors before asking her to marry you. It goes without saying that it involves not crossing inappropriate physical boundaries before you've made vows in the presence of God and His people. And for those who are single and waiting, keep in mind that Boaz, who was not a young man at the time of this passage, had also been willing to wait for the right woman, a worthy woman, an Eshet Chayil, who worked hard, loved the Lord, and took care of her mother-in-law. Now, not everyone is called to marriage, according to the Apostle Paul. Some are given one gift, and some are given the gift of singleness. But I hope that this passage will also inspire those longing for marriage in this parish, that there's time, there's a time for godly boldness in your pursuit of a spouse. Years back, I was discipling a couple of guys from FAMU who are about six months away from graduating and moving on from the InterVarsity Tallahassee community. And I asked them, sort of like, before you transition in six months from now, before you move away, are there like any godly young women in the community that you have, that, that you're sort of interested in pursuing? Is that like a part of your thinking at all? And I just remember they were shocked by the question. Because <laughs> they were thinking, oh, there's something wrong to even be thinking in that way. Like, 
I thought you were our InterVarsity staff worker, and I wasn't trying to like be the matchmaker or whatever. I was just trying to kind of like, where's your perspective at with this? Because I told them that good Christian community is not always so easy to find. You don't know what it's going to be like wherever you move. I think that Christians are sometimes afraid to pursue a relationship within the church out of fear that it'll come across somehow as like scandalous. It's as if like these sort of um, restrictions um, that, that were in place like during youth group or something like that have been carried on into adulthood. <laughs> and um, I, I think it's a mistake to adopt that mentality indefinitely. Marriage is a good thing. How is somebody supposed to find a godly spouse if they always feel like they have to look outside of the church? In just a few weeks, Aaron Taylor and Sarah Ma are getting married, and I'm so honored to be performing the ceremony. It'll be the fifth wedding in the history of this church. And the cool thing is, like Ruth and Boaz, it's going to be across ethnicities. In fact, all five marriages in this church have been across ethnicities. Now, of course, Christians should, should, we we shouldn't be flippant about dating. And that's not what I'm saying at all. We need to guard each other's hearts, keep healthy physical and emotional boundaries, walk in the light of the scriptures among the wider Christian community, stay in fellowship, knowing full well that it's always possible for somebody to get hurt even when you keep good boundaries. Because it's a vulnerable thing to be in relationship. But we can see from this passage that marriage is a good and true and beautiful thing, one of the highest of earthly goods, and there's a place for godly boldness when it comes to pursuing a godly spouse. And I hope that as we've been going through Ruth these last few weeks, we've all been getting just a sense of what a great story this is, isn't it? It's not just a story about romance. It's a story about friendship. It's not just a story about the glory of marriage. It's a story about the pressures of poverty. It's a story about an immigrant who brings a great blessing with her to the promised land. It's like there's this blood transfusion of fresh faith. And that's a story we sorely need to remember at this time in our nation. It's a story about the righteous provisions of God's law, about gleaning and mercy towards widows and kinsmen redeemers. It's a story about the working out of God's sovereign purposes throughout time, which lead us first to the genealogy of David and then in the fullness of time to the genealogy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who was a son of David according to the flesh. And Ruth chapter 3 is particularly powerful, not just because the romantic tension is sort of ratcheted up, although we do like that. But because in it we see this very relatable tension between being principled and being practical. Between being holy and being shrewd. And these things are not at odds together. They can be worked out and walked out, and the scriptures can show us how. And even when we need help with the historic context in the ancient Near East, I hope we can see that God's word is always relevant. God uses his word to teach us what is good and true and beautiful. We come to it with our moral confusion, and it brings clarity. We come to it with compromise, and the Lord inspires us to faithfulness. We come to it desiring to be part of a bigger story, and we find ourselves wrapped up in God's story, a love story between him and his people that has been going on for millennia. And what a privilege to be a part of it. Amen? Amen. We could only be so lucky. Mm -hmm.